I was striking out all the time because I couldn't see the ball anymore. I went from like starting varsity to being benched because I was dropping all these pop flies and I was striking out all the time and I just like wasn't playing well anymore. And they informed us that I didn't just have one brain tumor, but I had a couple. And I also had tumors all throughout my neck and my spine. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. My concerns changed so much, and I didn't feel like I was able to relate to my other classmates and to my friends anymore. I've had eight major surgeries at this point, and they have all left me with really bad chronic neck and back pain. People that have rare diseases are still people, and they're still just people around you. Michaela Gage is 22 years old and has four older brothers. She loves sports, including softball, basketball, and volleyball, and played varsity softball in high school. She also loves the outdoors, including hiking, camping, and fishing. When she was 17, she was diagnosed with von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, caused by a de novo mutation. Five years and eight surgeries later, she still spends as much time outdoors as possible and goes on walks every day with her two-year-old pug, Gus. She is currently a student at Utah State and planning to major in elementary education. Michaela, thank you so much for doing this interview. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you have von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, which I'm sure most people have never heard of. What does it mean to have von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, and how did you get that diagnosis? So von Hippel-Lindau, um, it's also known as VHL. That's just kind of the abbreviation of it. But basically, it's a rare disease that causes tumors and cysts to grow in up to like 10 different parts of the body. Um, it's kind of random. There's no way to really like track it. It's, uh, it is really rare. It is genetic, but I am the first in my family to have it. So that was kind of a surprise to find that diagnosis because um, there was no, we weren't looking for it. We weren't expecting it. But um, basically what happened was I was kind of having some symptoms. I mean, I don't know how much you want me to go into it right now, but I was having a bunch of symptoms and um, it kind of led to a brain MRI and they found a tumor. And then um, after a few months, they were kind of trying to figure out why, because I was a healthy, active 17-year-old. And then they did some blood tests and came up with this diagnosis. So it was a big shock to all of us. We didn't know what VHL was. Like you said, like we never heard of it. We didn't know anything about the rare disease world. And so that was kind of our introduction to it. Yeah. And I think from reading your blog, initially, you just thought maybe you had an ear infection, right? Like something really small yeah. and then it ended up, it was a brain tumor. Yeah. So I was playing softball and basketball. I was really active at the time. Um, and it just kind of slowly came on. I was having some weird symptoms. I just overall didn't feel good. But some of my symptoms, I was I was really dizzy all the time. Like I was having a lot of vertigo. Um 
I felt like I couldn't focus my eyes. My eyes would kind of like move weirdly and um, I would get really bad stomach aches and then it would be really bad for a few minutes and I would like run to the bathroom because I was positive I would throw up and then it would just stop and I would feel totally fine Um, Mm -hmm. and I never I, I never threw up and my arms and legs would just randomly tingle like at the pins and needles um, and playing softball, I feel like really, I don't think it made it worse, but it definitely made me notice these symptoms more because I realized, you know, playing in the outfield, I couldn't see the ball anymore. Or like when mm-hmm. I was up to bat, I was striking out all the time cause I couldn't see the ball anymore. And so, um, I went from like starting varsity to being benched because I was dropping all these pop flies and I was striking out all the time and I just like wasn't playing well anymore and it was definitely out of character for me so how um, long did that go on those symptoms and like your change in performance before you actually got some medical care and that led to the MRI it was probably about two or three weeks so not Mm -hmm. like a lot of time but um I feel like the symptoms started out pretty slowly and then about a week there was like about a week where they really progressed really, really quickly. And so when that was kind of happening, I remember one specific softball game. I did really bad that game. I had really bad stats. And after the game, I just went to my mom and we kind of walked away from the field and I just started sobbing. And I just remember just leaning my head on her shoulder and I was just like, mom, I just don't feel good. Like, I didn't really know how to explain it. I didn't really know what was going on. I just knew I wasn't feeling right. And so we got a doctor's appointment. Um, We just met with my regular family doctor. And I told him my symptoms. And I felt weird going to the doctor because I I feel like I have a really high pain tolerance. I feel like I've never really gone to the doctor. You know, if I have a cold, I'll just walk it off kind of deal. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So it was weird being at the doctor trying to say like, you know, I'm, I'm feeling weird, but like, I'm okay, you know? So anyways, right. they, they got my symptoms and they immediately were just like, yeah, you probably have this ear infection. And so we'll give you some medicine. And then in like a week, come back and let us know how it's going. So they gave me the medicine. I took the medicine and nothing was getting better. Things were getting kind of worse. And um, so we ended up going to see an ear, nose and throat doctor And they kind of said the same thing. Um, They said, yeah, you probably have an ear infection. Mm -hmm. But one thing that concerned that doctor was he would, he put his finger up in front of my eyes and he had me, you know, hold my head still, but follow the finger with his eyes or follow his finger with my eyes. And um, when he did that, if when he went to the far left or the far right, my eyes would twitch really bad. Mm. And so he said that is or it can be a sign of a neurological issue. So just in case, let's get you a brain MRI. So it was kind of like we already, we set up a follow-up appointment with him um, just to take care of the ear infection. You know, so it's like we are, we were going towards the ear infection, but he said just in case. Right. And so I remember the weekend, I had an, a brain MRI scheduled for Monday. And then the weekend before, I was <laughs> I was doing my own kind of research um, and one thing I did, I watched a bunch of like medical TV shows like house. <laughs> and, oh, I remember reading that on your blog. Yeah. Like uh, you're like not, not recommended for people, right. In your situation. Yes, don't do that. <laughs> so I was watching house and the very first episode 
the girl had a bunch of the same symptoms that I have had. And she ended up having like brain brain worms or something. She had like worms in her brain. And so oh, I, I pretty much convinced myself like, oh boy. <laughs> um, but that weekend, I kind of did feel very strongly that I probably had brain tumors. And it's kind of weird because again, you know, people go to WebMD and are like researching their symptoms and, you know, diagnose themselves with cancer. It was kind of like that, but I, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was being dramatic. I didn't feel like I was, you know, thinking about it too much. I felt like I had brain tumors and that was, that was it. What was your experience like with the brain MRI on that Monday? Yeah, so we went to get my MRI, and it was just Monday morning. My mom came with me, and it was kind of a thing like, let's just go get this done, and then we'll go get breakfast or something, you know, so it was just kind of like a really casual type of thing, um, but in my head, I just kept thinking, like, I, I, they're going to tell me I have brain tumors, and I don't know how my mom's going to take it, and mm-hmm. that's kind of what I was worried about the whole time. So I went and I had the MRI. I've never had an MRI before. Actually, that's not true. I had an MRI on my ankle, but that was a, it was kind of different because this MRI, like they put you completely into the machine. Um, And so I had the MRI and halfway through, they took me out to like readjust some things and I could see on their faces that they had seen something. Mm -hmm. They all looked very, they looked at me like very pitifully and just kind of, I don't know, like they felt sorry for me and they were scared. It just, they they looked like something was wrong, but obviously yeah. they couldn't tell me at that moment. So I just remember seeing their faces and I was like, well, that's it, you know? <laughs> so they finished the MRI. They took me out. They took me to back to the dressing room to change back into my clothes. And the radiologist said, but don't leave yet. We need you to stay here. We're going to go get a doctor. And so they put me in this waiting room and they brought a doctor in and it was this this random doctor who just sat down in front of me and my mom. And honestly, I don't remember everything he said, but he just said, we have found a brain tumor. And he said, um, he said, we don't know a lot right now. We don't know um, if it's cancerous. We don't know what they want you to do, but we will refer you to... Um, the neurological center and they'll kind of take it from here. And I just remember looking at my mom and her face just went white and she just froze. And I was trying to think of how I was feeling and Mm -hmm. I just remember feeling fine. And I was just, I just remember sitting there and being like, okay, yep. Like what's the next step? You know, I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't devastated. I just, I felt okay, which has always been the weirdest thing for me. But um, so they kind of just left it at that. And we walked out of the hospital and we were just standing in the parking lot. And the first thing I said was like, I asked my mom if we were still going to go to breakfast. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's what I was concerned about because I was hungry and I was ready to go get some French toast. And that was, you know, but we had to call my family um, I'm the youngest of four. I'm the youngest of five kids. I have four older brothers. So I'm the youngest and the only girl. So I've always been very spoiled. And I've always been, I don't know, I, I'm just, you know, I'm sure you can tell how that situation is. I'm sure you were doted on. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but I, 
I called my oldest brother. My mom called um, my other brothers. And we just kind of told them, like, hey, this is what's going on. And that was a really hard moment, just having to tell everybody. And my dad, he was home asleep because he had worked the night before. So he was sleeping. So we couldn't just call him. Um, So we went to breakfast and then we went home and we had to wake my dad up and we asked him to come to the kitchen. We all sat down at the table and that was one of the hardest moments too, was having to tell my dad because I just remember telling him and, you know, everybody says like, I've never seen my dad cry Mm -hmm. and that's, that's how it was. That was the first time I really saw my dad cry and he just looked at me and he just said, I don't want this to limit you. And he said, I don't want this to stop you from doing everything you want to do in your life. Mm -hmm. So that was like a really tender and special moment. But so that was Monday. Um, We kind of had a few other errands to run. We had to go and obviously we had to go talk to my softball coach. And then I talked with three of my best friends that I had at the time. So we were kind of like not really telling a lot of people, but also, you know, there was some important people in my life that I had to let them know. So that was Monday. And then Tuesday, um, we had a connection with the neurological center. So my mom's best friend, her daughter, was neighbors with um, one of the surgeons at the neurological center. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like a a weird connection, but they were able to talk to them and they just said, Hey, this is my, my friend's neighbor's, you know, mom or something. Yeah. Her her daughter is going through this. And can you please just like look at her file really quick? So what we've been told is what happened is this, um, the PA, he went and he grabbed my folder out of their files and he took it to this surgeon and the surgeon looked over everything and he, the first thing he asked was, is this patient still walking? And um, he told him, yes, she's still walking. And he said, well, then get her in here right now. So Tuesday, you know, less than 24 hours later, I was meeting with one of the best surgeons in the country, one of the best brain surgeons in the country. And, and this well, is in Salt Lake City? This was actually just in Provo, Provo, Utah. Okay. Um, but basically what was going on was I had a brain tumor that was right on my brain stem and the tumor was just about the size of like a pea. It wasn't very big, but there was a cyst that was growing around it and the cyst was about the size of a ping pong ball. So the cyst was very big and it was almost completely cutting off my brain stem, which is why he was asking if I was still walking. And later we found out that Based off the tumor and the cyst and everything, I shouldn't have been walking or talking or breathing or anything on my own. And so it was kind of a miracle just the fact that I was, you know, just that weekend playing softball. Right. Like that shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been happening at all. So Tuesday we met the surgeon. And at that appointment, he suggested that maybe I had something called von Hippel-Lindau. So it was at that very first appointment, which was crazy because I had, you know, it was just a brain tumor at that point. Mm-hmm. And he still somehow had this thought pop into his head that maybe she has VHL. I and, don't think 
partly just because you were so young. Like it's it's so uncommon to have a brain tumor when you're that young, partly. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, so he said, I think you might have this rare disease. And just in case, I want you to get a full body scan. Mm. So then Wednesday, we went back and we had, I had an MRI on my neck and spine. And so it was like a three hour MRI. <laughs> And that was crazy, just sitting there in this small little tube for three hours. And then we went back to the doctor. I think it was that same day. We went back to see them, and they informed us that I didn't just have one brain tumor, but I had a couple, and I also had tumors all throughout my neck and my spine. Mm. And so the new plan was instead of just having brain surgery to take out this one tumor, I was going to have to have brain, neck, and spinal surgery. And it was going to have to happen soon. And so at the age of 17, I had um, I had brain surgery. I had it that Friday. And then I stayed in the hospital that weekend. And that following Monday, they took me right back to have neck surgery. And then I was in the hospital for a few days. I went home. For a few weeks and then um, like two weeks later I came back and I had spinal surgery. So it was like a three-week period. I had these three major surgeries and it was just crazy like how fast everything happened. I was just mm-hmm. kind of like thrown into this all of a sudden and that was that was kind of the main the main start of all this and then like I said a few months later they did some blood testing and they did confirm that I did have VHL. Did the neurosurgeon order the genetic testing for you or did you see a genetic counselor or how did all of that part happen? Um, I honestly, I can't totally remember. I don't think it was the surgeon that ordered the test. We did go and see a genetic counselor at, at primaries. We went and saw a genetic counselor, but it it didn't really go very well, to be honest. I... We met with a with a genetic counselor, and he, you know, he was an older guy. He had been in the field for a long time, but he said he had only worked with maybe like four or five VHL patients in his whole career, mm-hmm. and so he didn't really feel confident like working with us, and he didn't really know a whole lot to tell me, and basically he kind of just threw all this at us to take care of for ourselves because the biggest thing with VHL is monitoring. And so you just have to make sure that all these different body parts that you can have tumors in, you have to make sure that you regularly scan and and make sure that everything's fun- functioning okay. Yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of the main thing. He just basically told us like make sure you get this scan and this scan and this scan at this time and every every off- so often. And then he kind of just let us go. And so that was kind of hard, you know. We we were like yeah. we're what are we supposed to do now, you know? Was he the one actually, was the genetic counselor the one actually giving you the results or you'd already learned that you had VHL from the surgeon and the surgeon was like, why don't you see the genetic counselor? I think how it happened was we did the blood test because it was just a simple blood test they had to do. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure I got a call. I'm pretty, I, like somebody called me and confirmed that I did have VHL because at that point we we were kind of living off of the fact that I had it you know it wasn't confirmed but we were kind of like this. It, made, it made sense yeah, yeah. We were like this is it and so that was kind of 
yeah, so it wasn't really a surprise. I got a call saying that, yes, you have VHL. And then that was kind of it. And so we kind of looked into it ourselves. We looked up primaries. We looked up genetic counselors. And we just kind of scheduled an appointment with a random one. Uh-huh. Um, Because my surgeon that I had, he was so incredibly helpful. And he still is to this day. But there's only so much he can do, you know, because he's a neurosurgeon. It's not like he can take care of my kidneys or my pancreas, you know, like he can't do all that stuff. Yeah. And so he was the one that told us, like, you might want to find a genetic counselor to take care of this for you. Yeah, I think sometimes that, um, especially that situation where you're going to need surveillance on multiple organs, it's smoothest when you happen to be seen at a specialty center that has all of those <laughs> different specialists working together and a genetic counselor who works with them because they can can refer you um, or kind of coordinate the appointments for you sometimes. But it sounds like this, like they were, they were not part of the same system, right? Like the genetic counselor you saw and the neurosurgeon and maybe the other physicians you needed to be seeing. Right. Um, but that was, that was actually just that first, those first few months because we ended up, one of the places that you can get tumors are your eyes. And so that was just kind of like, well, let's just start with the eyes. So we went to my regular eye doctor, who's actually like a family friend of ours. He's a neighbor. So we went mm-hmm. to him and they did some scans on my eyes and they found a tumor in each eyeball. And um, they said like, you know, this is kind of past our our expertise because they were just like a regular eye doctor. And mm-hmm. so they, they referred me to go up to um, the Moran Eye Center in Salt Lake. Uh-huh. Because they said they can help you out up there. And so after we found the eye tumors, we went there. We got an appointment up there. I met with that eye doctor, and she was incredible. And she was the one that referred me to go to the Huntsman Cancer Center in Salt Lake City. And I was kind of confused because I, as far as I knew, I didn't have cancer. Because when they took all the tumors out, they biopsied them and they were benign. And so I didn't have cancer. I just had tumors, which to me was like a weird thing to <laughs> figure out because, you know, as like a 17-year-old, I I never really looked into that stuff. I never really knew a lot about that stuff. And so I always thought that tumors equaled cancer. You know, like if you had tumors, it had to be cancerous. But that's not the case, obviously, <laughs> that I came to find out. Yeah, but what a lot of people think, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And still to this day, I have people come to me and like, oh, I'm so sorry you have cancer. You know, and I'm like, I don't have cancer. I still don't have cancer. It is possible with VHL that I could have cancer someday. Mm-hmm. My my odds of getting cancer are higher than most people's. But currently at the moment, all the tumors I have are benign, which has been a blessing. Um. So anyway, she told me to go to this cancer center and I was pretty hesitant because I didn't have cancer and I didn't want to go to a cancer hospital. Um, but she told us that they had a VHL clinic at the Huntsman, which was like super surprising because we had looked into VHL clinics and there's only a, a handful around the, the U.S. Um, I think there's like 12 or 13 around the U.S. And so we were like planning a trip to California. We were planning to go to Tennessee because we have family in Tennessee we could have gone to stay with. But we were, you know, it was kind of left up to us to find this care for me. And so we were like planning all these trips to go to a VHL clinic. But she told us that they were, they had a VHL team and they were in the middle of becoming a certified VHL clinic. So 
that was really cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So we were able to get an appointment at the Huntsman Cancer Center. And the first appointment we had was such a relief. Like it was, it was so incredible because we met with a nurse and she, um, she told us that she was going to be the one to take over and she was going to be the one to be in charge of all my appointments and all my care and everything I needed. She would be the one kind of like the main person, like you were saying to, to delegate all these things. Mm hmm. And I was able so to so much to keep track of. Like that would be that's like a someone's job. <laughs> yeah, especially as like a seventeen year old, you know. And obviously, yeah. my parents were helping out a ton, but you know, their their only daughter, their youngest kid, just got diagnosed with all this stuff. Just had all these major surgeries, and not only that, but then it's thrown onto him, onto them to be the caretakers and to figure out all these doctors' appointments when when we've never been in this world, you know, we, we all were very healthy growing up. We never had anything major happen. My parents are healthy. Like we've never been in this world of doctor's appointments and scans and medicine. And so, so it was just kind of uh, all at once, like I said, but the fact that this nurse was saying that she was going to take over, I just remember my parents were so, so relieved and so happy and so thankful but we were able to meet with some of the other doctors. Like I had a doctor for like all my stomach area, my abdomen area. There was another neurosurgeon up there who was like also going to take care of things. And so we just, there was all of a sudden this whole team that was just focused on me and on my care. And they knew what VHL was. They knew what I needed. They knew how to take care of me. And that was something we hadn't found yet because every single doctor I had seen I basically had to be the one to tell them what VHL was. That's never really reassuring when you have to go to a doctor and explain to them what you have. Mm -hmm. And so that was a weird experience too, you know, being not being smarter than the doctors, obviously, but having more knowledge in this area than them. And so yeah. that's never really reassuring when you have to go to a doctor and explain to them what you have. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, just a few a few months, I think, after my first appointment at the Huntsman, they became a certified VHL clinic, which was incredible because it's only about an hour away from where I live. And so instead of having to drive 12 hours to California, every time I needed a checkup, I could just drive up to Salt Lake, which was really, really special and really incredible and such a miracle in our eyes. I didn't know this at the time, but I ended up being their first official VHL patient, I think. Yeah, and nice. Yeah, and I did, they asked me to do a little interview for like one of their um, like monthly newsletters they sent out. So they did a little spotlight on me and that was kind of cool. But they were able to kind of make this network of doctors. So it was the Huntsman and then it was the Moran for my eye doctor. And then it was my neurosurgeon down in Provo. Mm -hmm. And so like all these doctors were now connected. There was a big like email chain. <laughs> And they would have meetings regularly, and they still do. Like, that's still how my care is. Every six months, I get scans, at least. And um, once a year, I go up and see them, unless I need to go more. But so that's kind of how it is right now, which is a lot a lot better than it was at the beginning. Yeah. And you're 22 now, so you've had this diagnosis for about five years. Yeah. So April, April of this year will be five years. How did getting that diagnosis change your experience of high school? Like just immediately with those with those surgeries, I imagine you were completely out of school for a while. 
Yeah, so my first surgery was April 22nd. Um, and that was, so it was like only, there was only about a month left of school. Okay. But it was my junior year and I had all these big tests coming up, all these big like end of year, end of term tests. And um, so that was, I, actually, I wouldn't say it was hard because all of my teachers were really incredible. The principal was really incredible. My softball coach was really incredible. Um, and I was able to basically just kind of stop where I was at with school. And so all my classes, all my grades just kind of froze. And I, I basically ended with the grades that I had, which mm-hmm. was nice because at the time I was fine. Like I had good enough grades. <laughs> and <laughs> so that was kind of how all my teachers handled it. Um, but yeah, so I was done for that year. So I was done for my junior year. I took the summer to like heal and, and you know, figure things out with my life. And then in August, I went back to school for my senior year. So that was exciting that I was able to go back for my senior year. I'm trying to think. I don't think I had any surgeries my senior – actually, no, that's not true. I did have my appendix taken out, but that was like over winter break, and so I didn't have to miss a lot of school for that. But other than that – Was that, was, was that unrelated? So my – that's a story. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, with my appendix – when they were doing a scan, they they saw something in my appendix. They didn't know what it was, but they kind of panicked and they said, there's something in your appendix. It's very large and we worry it's going to burst, so we need to get it out immediately. So kind of last minute. And I got that call while I was sitting in the neurological clinic. <laughs> so I was like waiting for, the, for my brain appointment. And then I was getting a call about my appendix about to burst. So we did a surgery to just remove my appendix and then they biopsied it and I actually did not have a tumor in my appendix. It was just like a swollen lymph node or something. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have to get my appendix out. (laughs) And that was just frustrating because I I ended up having like some other issues from that. Like I had some internal bleeding. I ended up passing out. I had to go to the ER. So there was like some issues with the actual surgery side. So that was just frustrating that it was like an unnecessary surgery that caused these extra complications, and it wasn't necessary. (laughs) We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. We love making patient stories, and we love that we are able to provide it to you without ads or influence from corporate sponsorships, and we would really like to keep it that way. If you'd like to support our podcast, please donate to patient stories at greatgenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com forward slash podcast forward slash donate. Was your experience of high school senior year very different, either because you had these additional appointments or just because your perspective had had shifted at all based on your experience and how you were thinking about what you would do after high school? Yeah, for sure. Um, As far as softball goes, I really wasn't affected too much, at least with like a future, because I never had plans to go on to play in college. I probably could have, but I didn't ever feel like I wanted to. And I think that was a blessing as well, because it it totally would have just ruined my plans of playing college ball. If I um, got this diagnosis, like I probably wouldn't have been able to. And not just because of the diagnosis, but because of the surgeries, because I have had, I've had eight major surgeries at this point. And they have all left me with really bad chronic neck and back pain. I've had a couple neck and 
and spine fusions. And so I have a bunch of hardware to kind of hold my spine together. And, you know, any, with any sport, that's not very good. So I, I was able to go back to playing softball my senior year. Um, I definitely wasn't a starter anymore. I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, the star player, but I was able to get up to bat a few times. I was able to play um, in the outfield a few times, but I just definitely wasn't myself anymore. I, um, I have permanent nerve damage in my left arm, so I don't have any feeling in my hand. And that really affected playing softball. I mean, I, I am right-handed, so luckily I'm, I can. I can, like, throw a ball and everything, but with catching, it was hard to learn how to catch a ball without being able to feel it. <laughs> so there was a lot of things I had to kind of change about how I played, and it was just hard not being that player that I used to be. That was really, really hard because softball was kind of everything to me. It was my life at the time, and I was really good. It was something I was good at, and I knew I was good at it, and I loved it, and I had fun, and I had my best friends playing, and and so that was, it wasn't necessarily taken away from me, but it wasn't the same anymore. It, it, it had changed dramatically. So that was really hard to come to terms with. And I wasn't able to like work out as much or practice as much. And that was hard. But as far as like the school side and the social side of things, I think at first when I went back to school in August, I felt really awkward because <laughs> um, at that point, basically the whole school knew about it. Everybody, I, I'm kind of, it's like, I wouldn't say it's a small town, but it is a small town, you know. Um, and so it's like everybody kind of knew. Everybody knew who I was. Everybody knew what was happening. There was a lot of fundraisers that went on at the time. And so I felt like every class that I went to, every time I walked through the halls, I just felt like people were just looking at me. And I mean, I'm sure that wasn't always the case, but I just felt really insecure and really, I just, I just kind of felt like I was sticking out so much and I didn't want to, cause I've never been, I've never been the person that wants to be like the center of the tension. I don't ever want to like be the loud, noisy, like look at me kind of person. So that was hard to kind of come to terms that I kind of was that person now, not by choice, but I was that person that everybody knew and so that was weird. <laughs> and I just remember being like sitting in class a lot and I would feel like people were watching me or um, I think the biggest thing, and I, I talked about this in my blog, is just how my concerns changed so much. And I didn't feel like I was able to relate to my other classmates and to my friends anymore. Because as a 17 year old, you know, you're you're thinking about all these different things like like who you who you have a crush on and and where are you going to go with your friends tonight and all these things but you know those weren't really my concerns anymore like my concerns were what were the results of my MRI or when am I going to have my next surgery or when can I get my my new pain medicine that's supposed to help my neck feel better so it's just crazy that I am I'm this teenager trying to be a teenager trying to blend in but I also have all these other issues that I have to think about in the back of my head. Yeah. How was your experience with, with close friends? Like, did, did it feel like they could kind of have some understanding of where you were coming from or really hard when they're also just so young and haven't experienced anything like what you were going through? Yeah. So that was a whole thing I talked about in my blog as well. And I've talked about this before, but I had some really close best friends 
who that summer where I had all these surgeries basically left me and abandoned me. Um, And I think, honestly, that was one of the hardest things. It wasn't the surgery. It wasn't the pain. It was losing all my friends. And it wasn't, I didn't ever blame them. You know, I didn't think like, oh, you're such terrible people. But we were all teenagers. And, you know, nobody wants to be just stuck in a basement watching TV all night. And that's all I could do. You know, I could, I could get up and I could walk down the street. But that was, that was it. Mm-hmm. So during this recovery period, after those three big surgeries I had, I had some best friends who kind of just moved on a little bit. And eventually, you know, they would stop texting me. They'd stop calling to check up on me. They'd stop coming over. And so that was really hard. Um, but again, like, I didn't really blame them. But the hard, one of the hardest things was just being on my phone by myself, you know, in my basement. And I would look at my Snapchat or Instagram and I would see all my friends out on hikes and out camping and out boating and, all, and doing all these super fun things that teenagers should do during the summer. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't. And so that was a really hard thing. Um, but come, you know, August when I went back to school... I was able to like talk with with these close friends of mine and I told them how I was feeling and I told them like, hey, this isn't cool and I don't want to do this alone. Um, and so since then, you know, everything's OK. Like we've they're, they're still my best friends and I'm we're everything's fine. But I, I think that's just a really hard thing for teenagers to I mean, just young people in general to to come to terms with because you don't understand what's going on you don't understand the severity of it. And, you know, if you don't have to deal with it, I don't think people want to. Mm -hmm. Have you had a lot of times since then when recovering from your surgeries really kept you from being active for long periods of time? Or is it just with the chronic pain that you have from so many surgeries? Has that just really limited what you can, can do in the outdoors in general since then? I would say both. After my first three surgeries, I was in a lot of pain and as time went by, nothing was feeling better. I was still in a lot of pain and every time I would have a checkup appointment, I would tell them like, hey, I've been in a lot of pain. My neck hurts really bad. My back hurts. I can't really bend. I can't really twist my head and they would always just say like, yeah, that's normal. You're just healing. Just let the muscles heal. You're okay. You know, like we did, we we were pretty invasive. We did a lot to your to your neck and your spine. So like... But they were, yeah, they would just say, kind of give it time, like you're going to heal. And then about a year later, it was still hurting. Like I was still in a ton of pain. And like I said, I still went back to playing softball. Um, and then that summer after my senior year, I had another MRI on my neck. And I went in to see my neurosurgeon. And he basically told me that... um my neck was kind of bent the wrong way. And so like with your spine, your spine is supposed to have a little bit of, or your, yeah, your neck is supposed to have a little bit of a curve in it. And Mm -hmm. my curve was just the wrong direction. (laughs) And so he, he suggested having a neck fusion because what had happened was when, when they went into my neck to take the tumor out, they had to take out some of my vertebrae as well to get to the tumor. And at the time, they didn't put anything back because that's just 
how it usually how those surgeries usually go because you have enough muscles, you have enough vertebrae to fill it all in. But um, we think that the fact that I went back to playing softball and to being active kind of messed with that a little bit. And mm-hmm. it kind of over time like made my spine pretty much collapse into itself. So we had a I had a neck fusion. I had to wear a neck brace for about two months in the summer, which was terrible. <laughs> um, and then I had a, sp- a lower spinal fusion. And that was a big surgery. That was one of the biggest surgeries I had because it was about a six-month recovery period. I had to be in a back brace for about three months. Um, and that was – it was painful. It hurt. <laughs> it was really painful. Was that when you were a senior in high school or was that after high school? That was after high school. So that was that was 2018. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, that was that was 2017. So I graduated May of 2017. And then um, that June, I had my next surgery. And then a few months later in December, I had my back surgery. So it was December 2017, I had my back surgery. And then I recovered from that, and my back was fine, but my neck still hurt really bad. So we had another scan done, and basically the hardware, they put titanium and screws and everything in. It didn't help. It didn't do anything. And so they went back in, and they did another fusion, and which was this one was a little bit of a bigger surgery. They went in the front of my neck and the back of my neck. And so I have screws and rods and everything in the front and the back of my neck holding my neck up. So since that surgery, I mean, I, it, it's better. I, I, I don't know. I would say my neck is stronger, but the pain is still there. So I don't have any concerns about my neck, anything happening to it, but I still am in, in chronic pain. I still have a lot of pain. I still take a lot of pain meds. And um, I mean, that in itself is a weird thing as a 17-year-old to have to take all these big you know, major opioids and narcotics all the time. That was weird. And I still have to do that every day just to function. And so that has been a big thing to come to terms with because I don't like taking medicine, but, but I have to in order to function or else I will literally be bedridden every day, which is really scary to think about. But um, I do try and like exercise a little bit. There's not a lot I can do, but I, I go on walks every day. I take my dog on a walk every day and there's like little therapeutic neck and back exercises I can do, but that's about it at this point. Mm-hmm. Do you still live at home with your parents? So I just recently moved out. Um, I, I'm going to Utah State University, so I just moved out and I start school tomorrow, actually. So I'm really excited. Um, I've been able to do some college. I've been able to do about four semesters, but they've been really scattered just because of surgeries. That was always an issue too, because I I had to miss my first, well, what I considered my first semester of college, you know, because like I said, I had that big back surgery. So I graduated high school, May 2017. Most people, you know, start college that same fall, but I skipped that semester And then I had my back surgery and I was really feeling kind of left out because all my friends had moved out to college. Everyone was like living their college life, living the dream, you know, and I, again, was like stuck in my basement, but I, um, I really wanted to go ahead and go to college. So I decided to go ahead and move out. I went down to Cedar City 
because my brother lived down there. And so I figured, you know, I would have somebody around who knows what's going on if, in case something happens and I'd still be able to move out and start college. So I went to, I went to Southern Utah University for a semester and then I had to have surgery. So I moved back that summer. And then that fall of 2018, that fall, I did an online semester at um, Utah Valley University. Um, just to, you know, I was recovering from surgery, but I still wanted to keep going with my college career. So I did an online semester. And then that spring of 2019, I was able to do a semester on campus. And then, and then I took a few semesters off because I served an LDS mission for about six months. And then when I got back from that, I took about a year off again. Um, actually, I did one semester online. So, I mean, anyways, that's all hard to follow. But basically, the point is, like, my my friends have all graduated at this point, And they're all working in their careers already. And, I mean, I'm 22. I'm still young. But it's hard when there's other people around you that are your age or younger that are, that are already progressing and already, like, into their lives, you know. Yeah. And I'm still just, you know, trying to work towards an associate's degree and trying to just, like, slowly do what I can, even, you know around all these surgeries. And that's kind of why I moved out just recently because I've gone over a year without having surgery, which is really cool. That's the first time in five years that I've gone a year without surgery. And mm -hmm. I'm doing good right now. Everything looks pretty stable. And so I kind of just jumped on the opportunity to be able to move out and go to college. So I've been to, I've transferred from three different colleges and I've lived in like three different cities at this point. And it's like, I, I'll move out and then I'll have to move home. And then I move out and move home, you know? So it's kind of this, this circle that I keep going around, but I'm just trying to do what I can to go ahead and live, you know? Cause that's kind of the biggest thing is like, I have, I have this scary rare disease. I have all these tumors in my body. Um, I have chronic pain, but I don't want that to stop me from living the life that I'm meant to live. And that's kind of like my biggest thing is like, I think, yeah, I think about this every single day. I'm in pain every single day, but I want to go to college and I want to have a career and I want to get married someday. And like, I have all these goals and ambitions just like anybody else. And so it's like, I am determined to reach these goals, even though it's going to be in a different way than most people. Yeah. Have you found other people who have VHL either through Huntsman or online or being able to connect with other people who have rare disease, who've had some similar experiences to what you've gone through? Yeah. So in Utah, I can't remember the exact statistic. I think it's like one in every 30,000 people have VHL. Mm -hmm. Um and so in Utah, there's only a handful of people that have it. But I have been able to meet a few people through through social media. I've met three people in person. I've been able to meet up with a few people. My brother lived in Ohio for a little bit, and there was a little VHL meeting that happened. So I was able to drive. I was in Ohio, and I randomly found this little VHL meeting, and I was able to drive like two hours to meet all these other VHL people. So that was cool. Um, but the, the thing about VHL that's kind of crazy is 
everybody that has VHL, like, yeah, they have the same disease, but their experience is completely different. Just mm-hmm. because, like I said, there's up to 10 different parts of the body. There's also two different types of VHL. And so it's like, you know, I have VHL and I might meet somebody else that has VHL, but they might have kidney cancer and they might have, a, you know, their liver fail or failure or whatever. And then there's me that has eye tumors and has brain tumors. So it's like they have the same disease, but our experiences are completely different. So that's right. why it's it's a really lonely disease to have. And I mean, I would say all rare diseases are lonely. But again, with VHL, it's like I'm never, never going to meet somebody who has had the exact same experiences as I have. Right. But again, I have been able to meet other people and I have been able to make these connections, which has been a, a huge help, especially when I was first diagnosed. I was able to meet people and and even just hearing about their experiences, even if it's not the same as mine, has been so helpful. Before your diagnosis, had you heard of hereditary cancer syndromes in general, maybe just because you lived close to Huntsman or did you know anyone with a rare disease? Nope. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I I really I really didn't, honestly. I my family has been super blessed with good health. And I mean, obviously we've had the the different things here and there, but one thing they do when you first sit down with a genetic counselor, well, at least for me, this is my experience. Um, they basically sat down with me and we made a family tree and we went back to all of my my ancestors basically to see if there was any connection with VHL, mm-hmm. see if it was a hereditary thing that I inherited, like a genetic thing. Um, and really the only thing was my, my dad's dad. So my grandpa, he did die of a brain tumor, but it was a completely different thing. And so that was kind of like the only thing. And I didn't even know my grandpa. So I, or it was my, it was actually my dad's grandpa. So I didn't even know him. So I wasn't really affected by that. But yeah, like I said, other than that, I really never had anyone close to me who had, a rare disease or who had been going through anything like this. So we really were just kind of thrown into this without any prior knowledge. Is there anything that you wish people understood about VHL or rare disease more generally, just based on your experience of living with this? I think one of the biggest things that changed from my perspective was, you know, thinking about rare diseases and people with cancer and tumors and things. I would the picture I would genuinely, genuinely have was, you know, older people who are sick and bedridden. Like that's kind of the picture that you get in your head. And so being diagnosed with a rare disease and having these tumors of my own, it's it's weird that I am still just a regular person living in this world. You know, like <laughs> that was just kind of a weird thing to me was that like, I'm still going to school. I'm still working full time. I'm still, you know, doing all these things that other people do and they would never know. Like I think of my coworkers right now. I just started a new job about a month ago and none of them know what I have. And I, with, with dating, that's a fun little thing, but with, (laughs) With dating, I've kind of played this little game by myself where when I meet somebody new and start dating them, 
I kind of see how long I can go without them finding out, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that's mean, but I, I just, I want to be a normal person. And as soon as people find out that I have VHL and I have tumors, I feel like I get treated differently. And mm-hmm. I feel like people are more concerned and they pity me and feel bad. But like, I don't want that. I want people just to see me as a normal person and, and want to hang out with me and do fun things and invite me to do fun things. Cause I can still do things. I can go on hikes. I went rock climbing the other day, you know, like there are still things I can do. It hurts and it's hard, but I, like I said, I don't want that to limit me. And so I think just realizing that, that people that have rare diseases are still people and they're still just people around you, you know, like you, like I said, I have a lot of friends that don't even know what I have been through and what I've been going through. It's a little harder with social media because I am very open about it on my social media. So it's like if anyone looks at my page, they'll know. But just seeing me in person and talking to me and, and hanging out, like, you would never guess. Uh, at least that's what I would say. Unless you, like, saw my scars or or I, I told you. You know, like, you would probably never know. And yeah. so that's kind of been the the thing for me to try and do better is just try and continue to be normal. But it's also hard too, because then I think on the other side of it, people see me being okay and they think, Oh, she's fine. Or like, Oh, she's not sick or, Oh, she's just faking her pain because, you know, even though I'm doing these things, like I'm still sick all the time and I'm still in pain all the time. I I push through it, but like, I don't know. It's just hard because other people don't understand. And I think I've become a, a I've become very understanding since my diagnosis, just being able to see other people around and you know, like I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what their life is like. And so there's no reason to judge them. There's no reason to to think that they should do more, or they should do less. Like that's not your business to say that, but I think just being able to support people and just finding people that are supportive is such a big thing. And so anyways, that's just kind of, I don't know, that's just kind of how I've been trying to live is just just be myself because I'm still the person I was before my diagnosis. You know, there's more trials and there's more stuff added on, but I'm still the same person. Yeah. That sounds really hard and really healthy. It seems like you're <laughs> in a really good place, place mentally. And hopefully this stint in Utah State and getting to live on your own will be a really good chapter for you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm excited about it. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.